Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Hello and welcome back to season four of Undermine. I'm Tom Marshall and I'll be your tour guide, your fish tour guide, as we travel back in time to destination 1.0, 1.0. This season, we'll be revisiting 25 monumental shows from the 90s on Fish's Road to Fall 1997, which was the tour that changed everything. Then we'll discuss every single show of that tour as we relive the season when Fish destroyed America. Think of it as color commentary or the director's cut as our entire community celebrates the 25th anniversary of that historic tour. My co-host for today is fellow Undermine executive producer, artist, manager, and New York Times bestselling author, Benji Eisen. Hi, Benji. Hi, Tom. Uh, I have to tell you, I am really excited to have our specific special guest on today because the show that we're about to talk about Stowe, Vermont, from July 25th, 1992, is one of those shows that I think every 1.0 fan has heard. And I'm not sure if more modern fans from the 3.0 era on necessarily have heard it or even heard of it. But when I became a fan, it was one of those shows like Amy's Farm 
that just everybody, uh, you at least knew of it. It's only one set and it's only an hour long. And the first half of it is actually typical uh, showcase fish or festival fish. You know, the band was opening for Santana. And so therefore they were playing to a much larger audience than they were used to. Uh, most of whom, or many of whom at least, had likely never heard the band before, maybe not even heard of them. Uh, and, you know, this was a national tour, but then, of course, this particular show is back on Fish's, you know, home base. Uh, and the band reacts to the Santana opening sets by playing their showcase tunes, you know, of the era. So this night it was Runaway Jim, Foam, Sparkle, Stash, Rift. And, of course, you know, we all know those songs by heart. And Tom, you know those songs by heart because, well, you wrote most of them. <laughs> but, but, you know, they were standard fare. They all were in heavy rotation at the time. And Fish played them that night with that, you know, the impressive oomph and that impossible precision that is so indicative of early 90s Fish. But they didn't really take any risks or deviate from the prototype. You know, because I think it was, it's showcase fish where they're just trying to put their best foot, foot forward. But then, you know, halfway through this show, about a half hour into it, the band has some special guests join them. They have uh, a pair of percussion players from Santana's band, Carla Perrazzo and Raul Ricao. And oh, yeah, Carlos Santana himself. <laughs> so, you know, there's the legendary Santana. There's the local band from Burlington and there's trade trading lits with Carlos on you enjoy myself, llama and funky bitch. I think, you know, if, if Trey's recent sit in with juice was seen as some kind of induction for that band, then, uh, you know, which is what, whether or not that's true is an, an another thing, but it was seen as that, you know, perceived as that by a large portion of the fan base. And I think he could, in a way, draw a parallel and say that this moment had, you know, some kind of coronation for Fish. You know, was there a torch? <laughs> I suspect we'll get to that. Uh, but first, as your co-host, Tom, uh, one of my responsibilities is to take this moment to remind our listeners that, uh, hey, if you like what you're hearing, then uh, please consider subscribing to Osiris Premium on Apple, where you'll get ad-free podcasts, you'll get bonus episodes, and more. Okay, Tom, tell us about our guest today. Well, first of all, Benji, thank you always for remembering to do that because we'll get arrested if we don't say that. So thank <laughs> you. Um, well, our guest today is the famous Shelly Culbertson. Shelly was one of the early uh, fish employees. We used to call it the front office and Shelly worked and she'll tell us probably what she did. But we saw her on the road. We saw her in Vermont at the office and she just was everywhere. And uh, she and I go way back. We were both fans, of course, of early fish. But we were also involved with the band in different ways. And um, uh, I think I, I got a couple of those details from Shelley a few years ago for Under the Scales, uh, but certainly for Undermine not too long ago. And uh, Shelley, I recall you were, uh, like I said, the front office doing administration of various tours. Um, and we're going to bring her on in a minute. She's in the waiting room. Um, but I also remember, and I want to thank you for helping me with, uh, tickets and stuff. And, uh, well, let's just say it. Welcome back, Shelly. Here she is. Shelly Culbertson. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing great. We understand you're in Nevada, Nevada right now. Is that right? Yes, it is Nevada. Yep. Uh, that's right here in Reno, Northern Nevada. 
Okay. Great. You know, Shelly, it has been many years since we first met, and it's been lifetimes since we actually last talked directly. But I wanted to thank you for all your kindness to me when I was uh, just a young, starry-eyed fish fan back in uh, 1.0 days. I was attempting, attempting to go to college between fish tours, <laughs> between fish shows, uh, and trying with varying degrees of success to take my obsession with this band as inspiration for the life ahead of me. You know, I spent all of my free time back then in the computer lab learning and writing about and discussing this band with the then burgeoning online community. And you took notice and you, you helped me out. You assisted me on my journey. Sometimes you hooked up tickets. Sometimes you even hooked up after show stickies. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll never forget those nights. So thank you, but uh, enough fanfare. <laughs> Tom, you... It's very sweet of you to remember all that. It's, it's funny to think so far back, because you're right, it was lifetimes ago. And in some ways, the world was very small then when all of those of us who are actually, you know, participating in the internet and whatnot, and also seeing each other at shows, um, could keep track of each other to some extent. And then the world got very big and now it feels like the world has gotten both very big and very small at the same time. When, <laughs> when we connect with those folks who were, you know, part of it all back then. Yeah. Well, I'll, well, I'll never forget those nights. So well, thank you. Yeah. Well, well, similar to, to, to what Benji said, um, anytime we mention that we're going to have Shelley Culbertson on or previously on uh, other podcasts, everyone has this similar type of memory is that you were always super kind to people. And I think you had some internet chops, which is why, you know, fish, uh, you know, the internet was brand new, fish was brand new, and here you were able to kind of bridge the gap a little bit. You were a fan that had internet chops. And why don't you fill us in on, on when you started working for fish and in, in what capacity, you know, in a nutshell, if that's, if that's okay. Sure. And I think maybe I could just sum up my role as mayonnaise, like trying to make <laughs> things go together. But, um, yeah, I started, well, I started as a fan, like many people did. Um, I first heard of the band on the internet, so that's not really a coincidence, I would say, um, back in the early days of the internet. I know that's been, or not the internet itself, but the internet as something that could be used by folks who were doing something other than just pure science, et cetera. And I know that's a topic that could be a long conversation is, and has been covered elsewhere. Um, but that is how I first became acquainted with them, both just listening as a fan and had the, you know, boldness to approach them and ask them to do interviews with me in those early days. And that's how we became acquainted. And then um, John Paluska was looking to hire someone to work with him full time um, early. This would have been in, late in 1992. So really just about a year after I had first met them. And since we'd already had some contact, I was certainly interested and applied. And that's how I began working for Dionysian Productions early in 1993. And at that time, um, the responsibilities were kind of as broad as they needed to be because there weren't a lot of folks working in the office. And 
you know, certainly John was very busy. I was the first full-time employee after that. So it was just kind of trying to keep track of all the things that needed to be done and, and getting them done. And a lot of it had to do with um, touring logistics and things like that. But it was a nice opportunity to kind of have a broad view of all of the operational needs at that early point in time. So I, I guess this show then still Vermont uh, was took place shortly before you became a, a full-time employee, but it was a uh, very important show in fish history, more for the significance of it than, than for the, the actual music, you know, opening up for the iconic Carlos Santana it really put fish on a map that, you know, beyond Burlington, Boston, Telluride, and these little pockets that they had developed on their own. Did, did, did you see it like that at the time? Do you remember? I remember that it was certainly exciting to see them in a setting that was bigger than the clubs and the places that I had seen them in up to that point. I'd been to, um, probably, you know, less than 10 or approximately 10 shows at about the time we're talking about. Um, I wasn't at the actual show in Stowe, but I was at one about a month later. Um, it was also part of that same tour at the Greek theater in LA. So that's, you know, what I'll be basing my recollections on. And, um, really interesting from a variety of reasons, you know, West Coast shows where I started were smaller at the time. Um, first place I saw them would have had about a, a 400 capacity in Arcata. Um, so then, you know, going from there, that fall I had seen them at Somerville Theater, um, which is a really high energy venue in the Boston area. So then moving from that level of large theater to these outdoor amphitheater style spaces where they were opening for Santana, much bigger space, much more, um, you know, polished kind of large event experience, you know, but at the same time when they were playing in that opening time slot, the energy wasn't as concentrated because there were still people filtering in. So it was very different from seeing them playing their own shows, even in those smaller spaces. And I, you know, I kind of feel like that must have made an impression on them as well, both being eager for the opportunity to play to new people and create an impression, but at the same time, not having that same sense of intimacy and that same sense of the whole venue filled up with people and energy during the time that they were playing their set. You know, there would be the hardcore fish fans who were there first and foremost for them and, you know, and then would stay on to enjoy Santana as well. Um, but that was definitely a, a smaller group. So it was a very different experience from what the shows I'd seen prior to that tour. Right. This one, this one uh, in particular kind of stands out. I mean, this wasn't the only show they played with Santana. And then later, of course, uh, I, I was along with them for a tour where uh, several bands opened, sort of rotated opening for Santana in Europe, and that was amazing. But this one, um, they were like special guest openers for a, a, a mini tour of Santana, but I think this was the only one that Santana sat in. 
and mm-hmm. and uh, you can just hear uh, it's like halfway through you enjoying myself. I think it's like eight minutes and forty seconds. All of a sudden, there's this other guitar. kind of neat because they sort of start blending into each other where Trey and Carlos are, are trading licks and, and they do sound similar in many ways but I, I, I think ben, uh, Benji sort of referred to it like they didn't want to, they were putting their best foot forward, they didn't want to misstep and I'm wondering if you, you I, I know you said you weren't at this show but do you think it was like nervous anticipation or just all out excitement or combination happening with fish on stage at that moment? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And honestly, it'd be interesting to go back and listen to like multiple opening sets, you know, during that time period and and to compare them because I'm sure there was probably a bit of an evolution in how they approached that, you know, whatever their, it was a fairly short time slot, uh, you know, it was, not more than an hour and probably less, I think, throughout most of those opening sets. You may know better than me. So, you know, presumably they had a lot to say and a small amount of time in which to say it, you know. So as that time passed, let's say from July, you know, to August, in those opening sets, they probably managed to find different ways to make the best use of that time. And like you said, Tom, you know, sometimes there was probably both a lot of energy, but also kind of a sense of, of caution as they work to fit their set into that. Cause that's a small box for them at that point, going from, you know, three and a half hours approximately between two sets to, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. It's like taking your, you know, 10,000 word, paper and turning it into a, a, a Twitter statement. You know? <laughs> yeah, there, there's something about it that reminds me of, you know, when they play fe- festivals as well, where they're trying to show off their, their compositions and they have so many different sides of them that they're trying to, they're, they're, they really just want to say, here's who we are, you know, before, before taking a deep dive, here's, this is our, you know, who we are as a band. Um, do you remember, you know, tell me, especially, it's interesting with with you going uh, working for them full time in 1993, which would be sort of seeing the results of this tour. Do you think that you know was Fish a bigger band after this tour? Was was there you know did, do you think exposure to Carlos Santana's audience uh, paid off in a measurable way? I'm sure it made a difference, but I think there were so many factors at play at that time that probably the actual, you know, I'm, I'm don't doubt that people who weren't familiar with fish and who first saw them because of the fact that they were going to see Santana and fish played as well. I'm sure that created some significant impressions, but I feel like there were so many other things happening at the same time too. 
um, the internet would be the one that I would be most aware of. And, you know, folks who were going to see them playing their own shows. And again, kind of like I mentioned earlier, probably a significant number of folks who wanted to see fish who went to those combination fish Santana shows with their first objective as being to see fish. So it's really hard to say how much effect that had on the growth of their audience in terms of the new people who were exposed to them, but it probably, I would think, had an effect on them professionally in terms of having a new level of exposure to all of the logistics of, of putting on shows in those larger venues and, and what went along with that. So kind of being a logical stepping stone towards the future that they were clearly headed towards where they'd be playing those same places within a few years as a headliner. Well, that's really interesting because I never thought of it from that perspective, but from an organizational standpoint, of course, it, it it's showing, it's kind of showing you the ropes in a way. Um, and yeah, I never thought of it like that. I was always focused more on the, on the audience and the growth, but fish were kind of unstoppable in that period, regardless of if they, you know, landed a great opening, you know, package tour or not. Um, Shelly, we have a bunch of more questions for you, but, but first I have to, uh, turn to our listeners to tell them that if you're a premium subscriber, you get to pass go right now and collect 200 monopoly dollars. But for everybody else on the GA lawn, stick around because we'll be right back after this quick break. And we're back. I'm Tom Marshall here with my co-host for this episode, Benji Eisen, and our special guest, the lovely Shelley Culbertson of Fish Incorporated alumni. <laughs> Fish Inc., as we used to call. Um, Shelley, thanks again for joining us. But uh, let me ask you, um, as, as uh, kind of a, a do-everything uh, person in the front office with just you and Paluska at the time, you must have um, come across this thing that... Uh, what, something you said jostled in my memory, and I, and I know I don't quite have it right, but I, th I believe it might have been just a Rolling Stone interview with Carlos where someone said something about Trey, and he said, yes, I love playing with Trey. He's a very soulful player, and I remember one time looking over at him. He gets so into his playing that uh, one time on stage, I looked over at him, and there was this big string of drool <laughs> connecting his mouth <laughs> and his guitar and, and he goes and that was the moment that I was like yeah this guy this guy's great that was like his stamp of approval do you remember where that interview occurred I'd, I'd like to find I, that again I don't if I come across <laughs> it I, I will let you know okay I'm gonna look um, for it because and, and post it up with this uh with this episode when it comes out if I can find it but um uh, we're talking about this this time period, basically, in the summer of 92, and you were just sort of getting started, maybe next year. Um, you know, this is Fish's Santana, you know, big, big act. Um, is there anything, not just specifically about Santana, but anything about Fish's growth spurt that kind of came right after this? Was there a feeling among the crew and the staff that, hey, this is working, we're really doing it? Like you were right in there at the beginning of this huge growth spurt. I mean, absolutely. There was a sense of, of energy and energy building that seemed pretty phenomenal 
and, you know, undeniable at the time. And I don't think that that feeling kind of really never let up for pretty much the whole time that that I was with fish you know which kind of the call yeah really it really was I mean the the culmination of that would have been big cypress which Mm. was kind of the the last um fish shows really you know that I was really involved in One of the things that I remember that I think is kind of interesting in the context of what we've been talking about, um, that I think was a very um, intelligent and correct strategy. You know, we've been talking about John Paluska. You know, he was he was very deliberate and very selective about the venues um, where the band would play. Um, because it was important usually for them to be in spaces that would be full and where that energy could build and where everyone could feel the excitement of, of being inside and being part of the experience, you know, so they tended to be venues that were were likely to sell out in advance, which, you know, was a really good plan, I think for that point, because it kept the excitement level high and it kept people kind of hungry for more, you know, and, and so I see that those experiences of the, the opening for Santana and how they fit into that picture as well, because it was a very um, easy illustration of kind of the difference between, again, you know, playing in a place with a small number of engaged people, but a large place versus a small to medium sized place packed to the rafters with engaged people. And then just kind of expanding those walls outward as the years pass, but continuing to keep that level of energy just as intense, even as the rooms got bigger, you know, and even as the outdoor spaces got bigger to the point where there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in Florida. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Talking talking with Paluska a little bit earlier, um, he was our first uh, episode of this season. Um, you know, a lot of us follow Fish on tour, and so we get to see a gradual increase of these venues and stuff. But think of it from the standpoint of the local people. Here comes Fish, and now they're in a small room. Here comes Fish again, now they're in a bigger room. Here comes Fish again. They're in a, it was incredible from the fan standpoint watching that happen, you know, when they came through, uh, you know, the, the three states that I would see almost every single show in, just watching every single time growing all throughout the 90s. It, it was unbelievable. You know, that brings up a good point. You know, Shelley, you mentioned Big Cypress, which is all obviously, you know, the penultimate in, in many ways. Um, but were there any other shows that maybe you were involved with where that you can think of off the top of your head where the stakes felt high because of the high profile, uh, you know, exposure? Like opening for Santana at that point, that was a, oh my goodness, like we're opening for for this, you know, icon. 
uh and then of course you know some festivals and things like that and like i said vid cypress was it, its own thing but were there any other shows where you thought you know you looked out at the audience and you thought like this is a big moment this is this is really uh you know important for the band well i mean certainly madison square garden always felt that way especially like the early trips to the garden even though you know throughout the time i was with them and thereafter i mean that that's clearly become a second home you know to them or a first home maybe but um mm. so that that would be one place where it always felt extra special I mean, another experience I remember, it wasn't precisely a show, but not long after I began working for them, um, they were nominated for an award, you know, in Boston. I, I want to say it's called the Boston Music Awards, I think. And, you know, and we all went. And like one thing that was exciting about that night, there's this row of empty seats in front of us. And we're looking at them and kind of joking with each other, like Aerosmith's going to come in and sit there. And then they did. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. But I think from that, even from that point on, like it was almost like so many amazing things were happening that it was hard to be too amazed by anything <laughs> because it was almost, almost all amazing all the time. But that being said, you know, Madison Square Garden is special. Um, Up to you, Benji. Keep going. Okay. Uh, this is a mad, this is a mad moment. We'll let it, okay. Um, you know, Shelly, last year I had uh, the chance to actually to work with Carlos Santana for, ju for just one day because uh, it was, we did a billion, the kids live stream. We taped it in Hawaii and, he he played with the band for, for a day and, and he, you know, he sat us down in between tapes and would play us jazz music and, uh, you know, talked about how he wanted to make timeless music. And, but he talked, you know, Bill, it was with Bill Kreutzmann, who was kind of his equal from being in the Grateful Dead, but he was more interested in the younger players, I think. Uh, and he had this, you know, he had undeniably magical musical moments with, uh, like, with Aaron Magner, with Billy Strings, but Carlos felt some type of uh, immediate and obvious connection with James Casey, mm. which was pretty cool because James Casey also, of course, plays in Trey Solo Band. Um, but it was really cool to see they did call and response and uh, with the cameras not rolling, you know, and Carlos kind of just had this like paternal, he wanted to like bring James in and and sort of not guide him, but it was just sort of this like, uh, you know, incredible exchange. During the, the Santana Fish shows, uh, do you think that, you know, did you witness or hear of or know of uh, any, like, teacher-student interactions with Carlos and Trey? That That isn't something that I had any direct awareness of, although, you know, undoubtedly that 
you know, would have been present in some way. And, you know, even, you know, in probably in just musical communication versus like verbal communication, you know, I have, I, one, I, I have one direct one. Oh, if I, I oh. could, I could interrupt with an actual one that uh, popped into my head, which is, uh, and this was later, this was on the European tour. Um, the tour that Carlos uh, kept bumping into me and saying, you're the only guy on tour that's not working. <laughs> and I said, I'm the lyricist, man. Come on, I'm working all the time. Um, but, uh, right. It's all no. research. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but no, uh, Trey told me that Carlos said to him, um, uh, you got to keep in mind that out here, they, you're treated like a king. People bring you your food. Um, you know, you're, you're cheered when you walk on stage and he said, but you gotta go home and take out the trash like everyone else and remember where you, you know, that you're grounded in reality. Don't let this be your reality because there's another reality that you have to keep in mind. And, and Trey said that was incredible advice. Incredible advice. Tom, I'm really glad that you brought up the, the, uh, European tour. Because, you know, Shelly, as you know, you know, Fish went back out with Santana in 1996 across all these European markets, uh, including including stadiums, you know, um, and that is 1996 would be the same year that Fish really became an arena band on a national level in, back in the States. Um, was the goal to open up Europe in 1996 the same way that, you know, the 1992 tour maybe opened up parts of the U.S. to fish, you know, from a growth perspective and, and did it work? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, definitely was exactly as you described a good opportunity to begin, um, how, you know, having some shows, fish shows available to people in Europe um, I think in general with music, the degree to which there is or isn't crossover between this with the same artists and their audiences in Europe versus North America, it remains an interesting topic. And that could be a whole conversation in and of itself. Um, but, you know, definitely, you know, for a lot of reasons, that was a good way to get a start in Europe. I didn't go to any of those shows, but <clears throat> I did go, the year is going to escape me, but there was a, a tour after that where Fish was playing smaller places in Europe, but on their own, not as an opening band, um, where I went to a number of the shows. And so it was also interesting, even if you look at it geographically, you know, Northeast United States versus West Coast United States then shifting to Europe, it's kind of a, a similar path, but just on a different timeline in the different places internationally. You know, I'm not really sure that the growth in Europe ever reached the same level that it has in the U.S., but also at a certain point, um, it's cool to have those experiences, but it it also becomes not a necessity. It's just kind of more of a, a nice to have, like to be able to have that international aspect to the, the touring schedule and the audiences and, 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 you know, and to be welcoming to people everywhere if they want to be interested, but, you know, at the same time, um, 
I don't think it ever developed in Europe the way that it, it did in North America, I, U.S. I, I, think, I think what I'm hearing you say, Shelley, and it's a direct message to, to fish, is that you expect them to tour in Europe soon. That's what I'm hearing. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and, uh, other important things that I think I heard you guys say directly to the audience uh, are to listen to this show. This this show, um, and I I went back to study, and I I think I'd only heard it in probably once in my entire life. I I was never a big tape collector. So 72592, if you listen, you know, if you're only going to listen to a couple songs, start with you, enjoy myself. Uh, when you hear Carlos come on and also, of course, the percussionist, it's incredible. There's an entire instead of a vocal jam, there's a percussion jam and it's three percussionists. Fish is probably like, you know, can't believe what's happening with those two amazing uh, Latin American percussion people on stage with him and uh we saw it later of course with uh the uh remain in light uh with carl uh perrazzo again on tour with fish but uh llama and funky bitch also carlos is playing is stellar and the way that trey interacts with him and the way that they interact with the band is unbelievable else uh, Benji no I mean I, you heard that fish is going back to Europe is what you took from it and I, what I took from it is that like the Grateful Dead fish is an American band the other thing about this particular show that is so cool is that you know it, it you can really hear because of the tone you can hear the difference I mean Santana is one of those players like Trey is where one note on any guitar and you know who's playing it yeah, and he so could play the worst like, guitar with the worst amp, and you'd know it was Carlos Santana. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, I'm yeah. going to have to squeeze one more thing in here at least, which Perfect. is that that one uh, Fish Santana show that I went to. Um, I do remember that there was some uh, turmoil that night because uh, Trey had changed the tubes in his Mesa Boogie amplifier. Um, (laughs) You know, maybe I'm not really sure what conversations led to that occurrence, but it didn't necessarily have the effect that he was looking for. And, you know, and then there was some time and energy spent to um, restore everything back to its prior state. But I I would guess that it would be interesting to do a side-by-side listening test of, I'm, I'm going to say it was 8.15.92 at the Greek in LA, you know, to because you were talking about that tone of one note on a guitar that by which, you know, in a second you could immediately identify Carlos Santana. Um, it'd be interesting to listen to some of the tones of single notes on the guitar from that set with the different, uh, tube configuration 
in that Mesa Boogie amp because I think there's an audible difference. There it is. Well, that's all we have time for today. Um, but I'd like to thank our guest, Shelly Culbertson, for joining us and giving us that homework assignment. Um, we have a listening assignment we have to do. My co-host, Benji Eisen, for all his work. And of course, all of you for listening. And remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch. On the next episode, we're going to be traveling through time and space to Atlanta in February 93 for a night that is still celebrated among fish fans to this very day. We'll reconvene then, and in the days between, keep calm and blaze on. Thank you again, Shelly. Thank you, Shelly. Thank you. Osiris. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like the shadows. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.